is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I am joined by a modern-day Renaissance woman. She's an accomplished leather maker, photographer, makeup artist, stylist, lumberjack, handyman, swing dancer, pig lover, motorcycle rider, and a mother. This Jill of all trades is a master of leather and metal fabrication for automotive and architectural designs. Coming up, my conversation with the Contessa of custom leather, Aubrey Fullerton. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm well, Aubrey. You got a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, and there's more added to that since then. <laughs> okay, so what makes you such a wild hyphenate? I'm not really sure. When people ask what I do, it's really hard to explain. I mean, I try to go officially by what exactly I have my businesses registered as, and I try to explain by those. I have this LLC and I have this LLC, and I try to divide it that way, but there's so many middle marks. I guess just how I was raised, it's just one thing leads to a next. I think like any artist, you're kind of inspired by several things around you, and it just drives you to want to learn and do and make, and I guess I'm just a maker at heart, so anything I can get my hands on in any form, I like to do. That's actually a good term, being a maker. So let's just talk about the power of that, that feeling of being able to make with your hands. Tell me how that inspires you. Just taking raw materials, and sometimes I, I doubt myself at the beginning too, but looking at a material that I started with, and then to see a finished product of something that somebody can use in their home, or I can use as a purse, whatever it is, to see a raw material turned into something that you wouldn't even know how it started is the coolest thing for me. And I think that's what drives me. And you like to express yourself. The medium of leather is one of the things that you use. What is your relationship with the material? I work with leather a few times a week now, not as much as the other mediums I use now, but leather, it was, I grew up in a log cabin in a swamp. <laughs> so for me, I grew up with very Native American mountain man ways. So we would make things, we all had the traditional tools and my dad would show me how to make a bag or you know, a shooting pouch or whatever we needed as sort of a necessity. And then fast forward to 10 years back, I made a backpack out of necessity, out of some leather that was gifted to me. And everybody thought it was so cool. And I was like, really? You guys think this is cool? Like, this is just, you know, something. It was kind of raw and edgy. And then I got approached to make some harmonica rolls for Steve Earle. So the, after that, it kind of just steamrolled into something a little more. You had your own custom viewpoint? Yeah. I would say everything I make is definitely usually a little more rugged and a little rustic. I say that's probably the best word. Just how I grew up and I like distressed and I like old and I love leather has a story and once leather is such a cool thing, once you touch it and your oils touch it, everywhere you take it and you set it down and it touches water, it just creates its own story in itself. So I think that's what's so cool about that. Yeah, it has an amazing evolution. I remember hiring a custom leather worker in Breckenridge, Colorado to make me a set of saddlebags. And it was an unusual idea, but at the time I was a close-up magician and I used to go 
table to table at restaurants and I had decks of cards and cups and balls and all kinds of things and I didn't know what to do or how to carry them. And the saddlebags made it pretty easy to put over my shoulder, but then when I sat down, I could just lay it across the chair and I could work out of either pouch and I could move to another table. So it was absolutely, as you say, the necessity and also practical, where do these props need to be at this moment? I had to carry them over my shoulder through airports and things like that. But I looked like the Marlboro Man a hundred years too late, but it really worked. It was really a good tool for that. <laughs> I made something similar for my photography business and it was more like a harness style. And I made two bags on each side to hold my equipment. And I looked kind of like a gunslinger, <laughs> but it made me look tough and, yeah, and it was interesting, but it was more just like, okay, what do I need to make that I could hold all my equipment and have it attached to me and attach my camera and attach all my goodies in. So yeah, same thing. In some ways you are a gunslinger, right? You still got to get the shot. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I grew up in Colorado. When I was much younger, I had a Tandy leather kit. It was sort of a big box with all the tools in it and things for making key fobs and wallets and things. And it was an after-school activity at that time. And I remember it was like carrying a giant box of Monopoly around. I would hold it on top of my head when I was walking home from school because when the leather craft after school thing was done, there was no bus anymore. So I had to just bring this whole thing home. But what I really remember was the visceral sense of pounding a mark into the leather. And there is something about leaving our mark on the world, isn't there? Absolutely. I always think of my stuff as like, nobody else can make it. Nobody else can make what my hands touched. And I have kind of gotten away as you know, as you evolve a business, you start to look at time versus money and things like that. So it forever changes the evolution of how you make an art piece because then it turns into this is my business and this is what I do. So I have gotten rid of some hand techniques and evolved into larger sewing machines and I have a laser machine now. So instead of tooling, I can laser things into leather and things like that. And it's kind of an evolution, but you're still putting your mark, I guess. You're using your brain and your hands to still figure something out and make it. And are you cutting everything custom? And when you do the leather on the interior of a car, that's got to be hand stitching, hand making in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I don't really do cars for other people, usually just for us. I've done a few things. Cars is a whole nother, the interior is a whole nother world. And when it comes to cars, I'm usually doing more of the metal work on the outside of the car. So it's kind of like I swap roles in that. But I used to all do only custom because when you buy leather, it's just so precious and you don't want to cut into it unless there's going to be a purpose for it. You don't want it to sit on a shelf somewhere. You want somebody to take it and use it. But I've kind of veered away just from being so busy, veered away from custom things. And now leather has kind of become an art form for me where I can create, okay, I really found this leather and it's speaking to me and now I can really create this one-off purse. And if somebody doesn't want it, then I will use it, you know? So it's kind of evolved from more of a business to a singular creation to create pieces that I just love more than anything. And do you let the tone and texture of the material then dictate whether this should be a belt or a something else? You let it speak to you and tell its story? Yeah. First, I usually, when I start a piece, it's usually thinking of what I want to make. 
and then there's obviously certain leathers that don't really fit you know there's different thicknesses different processes that the leather goes through that may not fit a belt or may not fit a purse or may be too difficult to make a purse out of so it usually starts with what I'm actually making and then from there it's color choice or things like that. So you mentioned the metal fabrication. I know nothing about that, but tell me what the process is. What is going on creatively from the raw material to what you're trying to customize? I mean, we do a little bit of everything. So I could be making non-flammable signs or lock boxes for the local steel mills, or we could be working on a car and cutting out a chunk of rusty metal and replacing it on an old car, customizing it, making different shapes. And it's the same as leather, it's tools. You have to have the right tool for the right job. So I guess I consider myself a collector of tools. <laughs> Sometimes I just wanna start to learn some new sort of art form just so I can buy all the tools. <laughs> well, that's cool. But you then have to know how to use them. Yes. In high school, I grew up in a farming community. So welding was kind of Still for a female, it wasn't like, oh, all the girls just went to welding. I was going as an art form for myself, but I picked up really quickly at it and I loved it. And so I carried welding with me for the rest of my life pretty much off and on. And when I met my fiance about six years ago, he's been building cars since he was 16 and it kind of just brought it back in. And it's funny because I was doing the leather work and I was making harnesses for the steel mill. All the trains are run by conductors who stand on the front of the train and they have these giant boxes that they wear these leather harnesses to hold the boxes. And so they sought me out and I made the harnesses and then they asked what else I could do. And I was like, well, I can do metal work. And so I started doing random metal work for them. And then about two years ago, we kind of did a little promo video of just all the random things that we do and just to put it out into the world. And then we picked up a big job in the city, turning shipping containers into a cantina and a restaurant, you know, just very random. Like, I don't even know how this stuff happens, but it just happens. And we love doing new things. So, of course, we didn't say no. And then he quit his regular job. And he was in the process of building a car, so I joined in. And he's taught me a lot. I didn't know a lot about metal shaping for cars and things like that. And I've learned body work and paint work. And I've learned all those things. I'm learning some motor work now and things like that. So it's just an evolution of what can I get my hands on. And you also do architectural, so like a bar top or any of that kind of a thing that someone might need. Custom is so important when designing an atmosphere because the shape and the size and the place it's so much better when it fits like a glove it is i mean we could go out and buy metal and make all the coolest things that we could think of but it's so much cooler just like the leather to have a custom piece that somebody comes in and says i want this purse and i want a pocket here and i want this here because this is where i put my phone and this is where i put my bag and this is where i put my keys and all those things it makes something that you're making worth so much more because somebody's really going to utilize it and if you're making a metal piece or a car even just making a car seat that somebody can fit into this person is going to fit into this car and like a glove that everything's going to cater to them the bar top is going to fit the restaurant perfectly and it's just fun and I think that's what challenges you to be able to do different things too we're not making the same thing all the time 
Yeah, it's also the special factor is something that you have forever. So sometimes if it feels like, oh, it costs a lot to have something custom made, to have a tailored shirt. But what surprises you is one, the quality, how well it's made, and then how much you appreciate it every time you interact with the object. Along the way, I don't think I ever regretted when somebody made something for me theatrically for one of my productions. And I had a toy box made, and this is similar to leather work. There's no greater joy than wood burning to me. Like smoke gets in your eye, but in the end, you have this beautiful old wooden train on the side of the toy box or a horse, and it's so warm and interesting. So we had this toy box and it was oversized because people had to come out of it. And I kind of hung on to it until it got weathered and was starting to fall apart. And then when I moved into the house I'm in now, we just took the sides off of it. We built kind of an island in our kitchen, which has got all the sides of the toy box, but it's got a granite counter on top of it. It continues to have a life because of the art and the custom factor. Yes, that's amazing. Something made by somebody's hands or something custom made that you had some input into is always a little bit more special than something that you can get off of the internet. Yeah. I mean, I think for people to understand or to give them context, going to your website, which is livefreeleather.com, they will probably can get an eyeful of various things and also the many businesses you're involved in because I know that you're a photographer and a makeup artist and a stylist and all of those seem to lend towards each other. Did that come because you began in photography or in modeling? How did you get started? I went to school right out of high school. I went to school for television, film, and makeup, and I did special effects makeup, and I started working on commercials. I lived in Florida when I went to school, and I did commercials down there. I did some TV shows, and the industry was not for me. I really enjoyed doing makeup. I loved the creative aspect of it. I loved meeting new people, and I loved the sets, and I loved all of that stuff. It just the general population of that sort of industry. It just was not for me. So I kind of just started floating and I probably did any kind of job you can think of. Woodwork. I worked with a woodworker for a while. I worked with a metal worker. I, I worked in corporate America for Xerox. Like I worked all these jobs just to figure out where I was supposed to go. And I owned a candy store for a while, <laughs> all these different things. And so actually that what kind of, that's what led me into photography. I modeled and things like that, but I never saw myself on the other end of the camera. What started that was I had a store in Florida with candy and soda and vintage clothes and things. And I got pregnant and we closed up shop and I moved back up north where I'm from. And I had all this product left over that I needed to try to sell online. And so I bought a half care, you know, a crappy camera. And I lived in a barn in the swamp for about a year. And so all I had was a white sheet, a crappy camera and a window for lighting. And I had 40 friends on Facebook. I was really into pinup and retro stuff. So I posted a little set that I was doing and I just started from there and slowly worked up and moved into a house, built a studio. And I don't even know, I, I really, I split my careers half and half. I do one thing is I get up in the morning and go do somebody's makeup and hair and do a fantasy photo shoot of them as a fairy in the woods on a Tuesday. And then maybe Wednesday I'm downtown welding something. So it's very different. And the photography, it just, it just keeps rolling. I don't know. They just keep coming to me. So I guess it, <laughs> I'm just here. I'm a photographer now. I learned Photoshop. I remember my son was, he was six months old and 
I remember as a woman and my body just changed. I'm like, I want to learn how to flatten my stomach and smooth my skin. And so I took these online Photoshop courses and I stayed up every night and took classes. And I thought I was never going to learn it. I'm not a school person. I am not a college person. It's like over my head. I learn hands-on much better. And I just, I, I learned it. I did it. And it just progressed. The things, technology things forever change. So I'm still learning. But I always tell people, I'm like, I don't operate like a normal photographer. I don't really care what my camera is. I buy lenses out of necessity. I just do it because it's fun. Because I can, I guess. <laughs> do all these things because I can. Here's what's interesting. You mentioned something that I want the listener to hear because school's not for everybody, but also academic and book learning isn't for everybody. So many creative people, if you can identify the kind of learning that you're good at or that you like, visual learning or hands-on learning or audio learning, like some people have an ear for music or an instinct for story or things, it doesn't make you weird. It's about getting in touch with it. And I feel like school systems are not built to figure out how to customize it to each of us. And some of us, I think I went through life as kind of a B minus student who knew that I had to get through that stage in my life. But I responded much more tactically to shuffling a deck of cards, uh, learning how to juggle, learning how to balance, learning how to ride a unicycle. It's not that I wanted to go be in the circus. It was that I liked the sense of accomplishment when I could get a task, just as you're describing, that when you learn and get more confident with whatever medium you're working in, it starts to become more and more fun. And then you can get really creative within it. And that's, I think, for the arts people, it's like you may not know what you're gonna be known for. You don't know what your legacy is gonna be because the medium could still be waiting for you ahead. Yes, I remember in high school, everyone would ask me, what are you going to be? What do you want to be? It's just like what you have to know now because you're told. I listened to one of the podcasts that you had, the woman who makes the paper sculptures exploding out of buildings, which was amazing. But she made the statement, education gives us parameters. And I kind of feel like that doesn't just include school. Like from the moment you're born, you're constantly being educated by your surroundings, by what's normal, by what's expected in society. And it all gives you these parameters. You go to high school and then you're supposed to know what you want to do. And then you go on to college and then you're supposed to stick with that for the rest of your life, whether you like it or not. And I think people feel like failures when they're 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 and they feel like they want to change careers or try something new and it's not it's, I feel like that should just be normal I think life is an evolution and there's so many things to enjoy and learn and experience and you should forever be changing and finding the things that you love and with age things change and things that you love change and definitely for children my son goes to a school that is I call it a hippie school. It's called a Sudbury school, but it's like a Montessori school on crack. And the school is run by the kids. They vote in teachers. They vote in classes. They do whatever they want. Like the first day I drop my kid off at school, I walk in and there's a kid standing on a desk playing the trumpet. There's a kid jumping on a beanbag. There's a kid building a computer. It's like chaos. But I'm thinking, this is amazing. Like, this is perfect. Like, let my kid be a kid. And he learned how to read. He's in a school with ages five to 17. And they all just learn. They learn how to read. They learn how to write. And they learn how to be fun and how to be kids and how to experience different things that I think when you go to the normal school, like you're supposed to do this, 
they experience different things without being told what to do. It's kind of a cool experience to see that. So that's kind of how my life is. Well, they keep the word play in it. I think in the other schools, they take it out. But I love how you describe this a Montessori school on crack. And you're not condoning crack, I know. So I want to be sure <laughs> that kids that listen to that know that they're not actually providing that. It's like the Mountain Dew School of Learning. But here's what's interesting. The what do you do question, particularly when you have a lot of interest, and we were just talking about your long list of hyphens. But the truth is, at the core of that, once you're able to say, I'm a maker or I'm a Renaissance woman, that's really enough. Because as an artist, our brand is who we are. It becomes an Aubrey Fullerton vibe. And I feel like the sooner we come to that realization that we don't have to define ourselves, our identity is not one thing. Like you are a mother. I hear you talk about your son and you're a mother in that sentence and you're the next sentence, you're a metal fabricator. So we don't really have to keep changing that label on our forehead. It's just sort of hard because everybody wants a quick insight to what use you are to them that's the hardest part. And also, by the way, for me growing up, people couldn't figure out how I could make a living at any of the ideas I had. Like, how does a writer make a living? How does a comedian make a living? It gave them stress because they're not used to that notion of risk. And to me, it's not risk. To move towards the epicenter of where your interest is, to be doing the things that you love, there's a wholeness to that. You feel much more centered when you're working in mediums that you love because you care less about money and you care less about the other things around because your passion and purpose is set on fire. I wish we would all hurry up and get to that point where we don't have to define ourselves in a box because that is the most dreaded question for me. What do you do? <laughs> I always have to take a deep breath before I talk to anyone. And sometimes it depends who's asking and how I curate what I do, what may relate better with their life. Because before when I would say, oh, I do, before my leather business turned into a fabrication business where now we're just kind of makers and we fabricate things out of materials, I would say I do pinup photography and leather work. And everybody immediately thought, oh, leather and pinups. And they put it together and I'm like, really, I'm just two people. It's exactly like how I am. One day I show up, I'm in guys clothes and I'm dirty. And the next day I show up and I look like I'm about ready to walk the runway. And so it's just exactly how my career is. And when people ask me, it's like, well, I try to, ha I have to pinpoint, well, I have two separate businesses and this one does this, and this one does this. And I always get some sort of reaction that is a chuckle or a shock or, oh, you weld or you do this. It's a constant, <laughs> it's a struggle. It is really a struggle. And I, I can't wait to the day I can just be like, I'm a maker. But then, you know, if I said that, well, okay, well, what do you do exactly? <laughs> yeah, it's a constant confusion. And maybe you need to find a word like, I'm just busy making awesome things happen. Let them worry about it. It does feel like a great deal of our time is consumed defining ourselves. And I don't know, I just always found that I ran my own race against the clock or against my own best time and that it didn't really make that much difference what my competitor was doing because it's such a weird example to write jokes for a corporation that's having an insurance conference. Like, where do you get a guy like that? So it really becomes a referral business. Somebody sees 
something that you've created and people say, where did you get that? It becomes more of word of mouth growing and people appreciating your value, especially in the custom business. It feels in the last several weeks, I produced shows that were as a memorial for somebody who passed and then some comedy show and then a television thing and they're nothing alike. They still have elements of the same. They have to have a storyline or a host, but for the most part, it's a new riddle to solve. Just as when somebody comes and says, I need to have this made, what's the best way to go about it? They need an expert to tell them and somebody to figure it out. Like most people can't make the kinds of things that you make. So when you're in dialogue with somebody, how do you start to find out really what they want versus what they're fantasizing about? Well, that's a forever learning process. I think anybody listening who listens to this who might be an entrepreneur, it's a forever learning process of how to communicate what your boundaries are and what you can give them versus what they want versus explaining the process so maybe they have a little more understanding of what we can do. It's a forever learning process. Obviously, they always come to me with an idea like, oh, we need a bar built. Okay, well, do you know general dimensions? And now I've definitely learned I do not do any quotes until I've actually been out to the space wherever something is going or looked at something physically. What If we're doing a restoration on a car, we look at it and there's always things that could pop up. You go there and you're like, oh, well, now there's a water line here and we can't put the bar there. So we have to make this change or this. It's just always something different. Honestly, it's different dealing with every person. And I think I would say that it's just learning each client. Each client is so different and learning how to work with each client. It's just a like I said, it's a forever learning experience. Right. You're as much a psychologist as you are anything else at the moment of interacting with a new relationship, especially let's say you're doing it for a couple and one may want a man cave and the other person wants a sewing room. You actually have to be a marriage counselor while being an artist. A hundred (laughs) percent. Yes. There might be two owners to a business and one wants this and then the other one says this and then you're like, okay, which one is it? And then you involve a contractor in there who's saying, well, we can only have this, but then they want this. So how do you make everybody happy? It is a juggle for sure. Also, you don't know if you're actually producing something is what they expected because, you know, expectations sometimes ruin things for people because they have this expectation of one thing and then you can only hope and pray that you're making what they expected and then you give it to them and usually I'm just like oh whatever they'll like it no matter what because we put love into it and you just have to hope that and you have to stand behind what you make and hope that they like it and I would say 99% of the time everybody is just super happy with whatever I bring them or whatever I make or whatever I do just because they like the whole process. I'll teach you a word that I've used before called anticipointment where they anticipate something so much that they can only be disappointed in the result. Those are the people you got to watch out for. But when you do, let's say you describe the fantasy shoot. So you're putting on a, a boudoir photography experience for somebody. It feels like while the idea is sort of a sensual, pleasuring thing, you're actually giving them an experience of hope and of self-confidence and the pictures are the result of the experience so it feels like the whole thing you're doing around it is empowering them 
A hundred percent. That's why anything I advertise for my business, I always say whatever I call the set. Cause my thing is, is I build sets every few months and I change it up. I like, you know, cause I get bored too. And I do different sets. I'll do a boudoir set where it's a bedroom set. And then I do a fantasy set and whatever it is, I'll have a name for it. And I call it an experience, a photo shoot experience, because you're right. It is absolutely an experience to have somebody who doesn't know you to walk into a new place to have you in their face seeing all of their flaws doing their makeup and their hair ways that they probably have never had it done before that brings them totally out of their comfort zone and then half the time you're seeing them half naked in lingerie or in something that they're typically not comfortable in and a lot of women I shoot real women I shoot women who have had kids or have had weight loss or weight gain or surgeries and we're all our own worst critics so it really is the challenge in itself to get somebody out of their comfort zone get them comfortable with me and again each person is very different so being a psychologist and getting them comfortable and it is once they see the photos I mean all the time they're like who is that is that me and it's just a really full-on experience from beginning to end it's like the photos are great but the feeling it gives them like oh I still got it or wow I've never seen myself in that way it's a full-on thing it must be sort of an emotional transformation for them too because I think about the first step is having the confidence or the willingness to say I'm going to do the experience, which in anything is a bit of cliff diving. If somebody says I'm going to become a songwriter, anytime you make that declaration, that's sort of stage one in your transformation, like to get your head behind it. But I would think that in that experience, there is more that they want. And when you talk about pinup photography, this is not intended for a magazine or going into something where they're a professional model, as you said. This is somebody who, for personal reasons, wants to go through this experience, wants to see how the outcome is. And then when you start to do makeup and hair, you, now you move into a level of pampering in a way. You're like you're giving them something the way you would if you did somebody's hair for their wedding or some other kind of thing where it's a transformational moment. So I would imagine that whether somebody's engaged or divorced, that they're in a moment in their life where this becomes a real value in their confidence. And I guess I'm saying that it's clearer to me now that we're talking what is happening. And I saw on there and I was confused, but now I understand it better that you have subscription memberships. So when your set would change, you would put an invitation back to somebody to shoot a different scenario. Yeah, so I relocated my business about six years ago and only 35 miles, but it was from Indiana to Illinois, right out of Chicago. And a lot of Indiana's a little slower moving. And to get my Indiana clients to move and come over 35 miles to come see me, it was like pulling teeth. And I'm like, okay, guys, like I want to give you the great deals and have you guys come all the time, but then you just need to let me know that you're coming all year. So I started the subscription about four years ago and I started with like 12 people and then it went up to 30 and people come back every year. And so they come every month um, or every couple of months. And like I said, I changed 
change the sets out where I have like two to three to four sets going at a time. I have a 3000 square foot warehouse. So I just build, I had a pool in there a couple weeks ago. We did a pool shoot. I mean, I like thinking out of the box a little bit to where people come in and they're like, wow, this is weird. This is fun. I have music going for each set that matches a set. I have a fog machine going. I want them to feel like they're somewhere else. But yeah, so I have a subscription and who would have thought that, but it's just that entrepreneurship forever evolving. And how does this jive with motherhood? Your son is in school, he's in Crack Montessori, so he clearly doesn't nap there, but no. But in terms of what is passed down artistically, is he someone that hangs around the studio and gets his hands in on this stuff too? He does a little bit. When he was younger, he did. Even though we have all these machines and all this equipment and all these things he could utilize, he is into gaming and he's into technology and he's into all the virtual reality things. And that's kind of his thing. And it's hard to accept a little bit sometimes, but he's 11. So he has just started coming around to where he's like, he saw me sewing the other day. I told him, I said, you know, this is a good thing to learn to sew. I said, everybody should know how to do a basic sewing. And he's like, okay, well, will you teach me? So I said, okay, think of a project that you think you want to make and let's do it. And so it's finding things that he's interested in that kind of pull him into those things. So I'm still working on that. It's funny. The first year that my junior high school had boys allowed to be in home ec, I was a part of that wave where we left shop and a couple of us went over and were the first guys to take home ec. But I took it because I thought we're going to make a meal and we could eat during school. Like that was my MO. But the funny thing was it was this rather insulting way they treated the boys, which was like they would teach you a breakfast thing and the girls would make eggs and the boys would make the toast. Like we would put the stuff in the toaster. And then when it came to sewing, the girls were making a blouse or something, and we made ties, like a one straight piece of fabric. Like, they just absolutely did not trust us to get anything right. And it made me laugh, but at the same time, it was fun that you could hang out with the girls and also the fact that you could make cookies in school. But in the end, as a divorced dad, learning to cook is a good thing. You have to kind of be able to feed the fire station full of folks around here when it's necessary. And I would say my 19-year-old is a better cook than I am and always plating something amazing. And part of it is that he got in there and did it and learned it on his own. So giving permission for kids to get creative in any form, I think is really, really valuable. Absolutely. If they haven't tried it, how do they know if they want to do it or they can? And I think the more things that people know or people get educated on or people can put their hands on and try something, they're not scared. It translates to the rest of your life. If you're like, hey, I'm a boy. I didn't think I could sew, but hey, I went and made a tie and I can do that. So hey, if my shirt breaks, maybe I can sew that too. And it translates through the rest of your life, it gives you confidence to be able to tackle things that you may not feel is gender appropriate. I mean, I face that every day. I work in a man's world and I still face that whole battle. So yeah, anything you can get your kids to get their hands on. And I'm getting ready to give the, his school a, a list of classes I can teach if the kids want to learn, like makeup or business entrepreneurship. A lot of the kids live in the city, so in Chicago, and they may not have access to tools or 
to a forge or to a welder. So I'm going to bring them all out and have them try it. And maybe they're not going to like it. Maybe they're going to be scared of it, but it's just going to let them see what else is out there, that there are opportunities to make a career, to make a future, or just to have fun with something else or to try new things. And it's the great thing for them to try things. Taking the intimidation out of anything is really important. When I was younger, filmmaking was almost an impossible idea because you had to get the film developed and then you had to learn to splice it and you fear of the bulb burning the film. There was all that. But now kids have a movie studio in their phone and the intimidation is gone. They're shooting everything and editing everything and movie making in a way that it's a powerful way to be able to communicate and it takes the whole studio system out of it. They can shoot an entire film on their iPhone if necessary at a much better resolution and they can get it up on YouTube. Like you can literally distribute your ideas, a good or bad, <laughs> out to the world the same day you shoot them. So that's a pretty powerful way to get your brand built, so to speak. And now I've noticed on your Instagram that you've got tattoos. That's another form of storytelling. What was the first tattoo that you got? My tattoos, it was a form of art. They're all traditional. Most of them are traditional Japanese. And I say that I have one. I have a half of a suit. And they're about 17 years old. I started before I was 20. And I went once a week to twice a week for four years. And I just like the artist. I like the art. I loved, and like you say, storytelling, Japanese artwork to me, just by the way the leaf is turned or the color of the leaf or the way the snake is going up your arm. It all tells this story. And that really intrigued me. And I went in with just do whatever you want. I kind of like this, just do whatever, because I just felt like to an artist, that's what I would want. I would want somebody to be, hey, here's my budget. This is what I want. Just go for it. And I love my artwork. That's amazing, though. That shows a, a great deal of trust and faith in the artist, because when you're the canvas, if you don't love it, it's not easy to change. Yeah. I was young and I loved the artist. I, I've a couple different artists, but they all go together. And I remember I went in for a half a sleeve on my upper arm so I could still wear cardigans and cover it up. And he drew out a whole sleeve on my arm. And I said, well, I guess I'm getting a whole sleeve today. <laughs> and that was it. It just went from there. And my back piece, I didn't know what it was until probably about six months in until he started kind of shading it and I could see designs on it and I could tell what it was because it was just line work. It was just a bunch of lines everywhere. But yeah, I, I, I <laughs> so, so I appreciate all forms of art. Yeah, I was just thinking if you trust a guy like that to do your back and he tattoos kick me back there, then you're, that may be the end of the relationship at that point. But well, all of this that we're talking about, instead of that earlier haunting, what do you do? It's who are you? That's what the search is for. And this kind of brings us back to the notion of style. Because as a stylist, uh, doing hair, doing makeup, doing photo shoots, I think a fashion designer, Rachel Zoe, said, style is a way to say who you are without having to speak. And so I think that's a little bit of what you've got going on here, right? If people go to your Instagram and look at Aubrey Fullerton, which, or what is your Instagram? My personal is Aubrey Fullerton. And from there, you can kind of branch off to all of the rabbit holes. <laughs> so, and then it's Tokyo Rose pinups and live free fabrication and 
white lightning jewelry. I do silversmithing. I also started a kind of sort of blog called Dive Bar Diva on the go because everywhere I travel, I kind of dive really deep into everywhere from dive bars to five-star restaurants. And so people wanted to know where I go. So I started sharing different things like that. And so, yeah, there's a lot of rabbit hole to go down. But again, rather than think about the diversity of it, it's the Aubrey Fullerton vibe, right? So finding out that you're essentially expressing yourself through your artwork, even through the sharing on this blog, you're telling people what you like and what's going on. That's really the modern day version of becoming a personal entity into the world. And I guess it's a pretty important thing for me to help amplify because I feel like the listeners, the creative listeners we have are all searching to do the same thing. Not so much merchandising and all of that, but just the idea of making their personal expression their profession. Is there any advice you would give to folks? I feel like technology can take you down sometimes. And even in your personal life, being an entrepreneur, whatever it is you're doing as an artist, as a person, a mother, anything, as you expose yourself to all of the technology platforms, it can take you down very quickly because you're seeing everybody's highlight reels and you're over here like, oh, I'm, I suck today and they're awesome and I'm not. And I experience that often with myself and I just have to remind myself, stay in your lane. Like you are trying your best, you're doing your best, always do the right thing, be truthful, work hard, just all the good things about yourself, just keep pushing forward. Do I get inspired on social media? Yes, but you know what? I get inspired about life and I don't need to sit on social media all day. I can get inspired by anything, feelings, the wind blowing, whatever it is. So just don't fall into the social media holes. Definitely stay in your own lane and find things to help you stay focused on just what you're doing and be creative in your own world, your own life, and don't judge yourself too harshly based on what you see out there. The worst we can do is be our own worst critic. Absolutely. I say be good to others, but also be good to yourself. Absolutely, number one, for sure. Well, Aubrey Fullerton, you are amazing and unique. And uh, I don't think we need to tell anybody what you do. You're a creative artist and an entrepreneur. And I think that maybe is the best thing. Just tell people I'm an artistic entrepreneur and leave it at that. And then they can discover you hopefully through your website or Instagram. And you're plenty busy having cool ideas. So let them catch up to you. Yeah, I'm going to work on that. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stare.